continuing our expositional study of Paul's first canonical letter to the Corinthians. And we find ourselves in chapter 9, which is sort of the center of a larger essay, if you will, in which Paul gives instruction on how Christian men and women ought to behave in view of the fact that we live in a culture that does not recognize the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's where we find ourselves here in chapter 9. Let's begin reading in verse 19. 1 Corinthians nine nineteen. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for the gospel. The good news, the message that you have sent your son, King Jesus, into this world to bear the sins of sinful men and to take us into your presence, accepted and justified before you. That we can know for sure that all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, their verdict has already been handed down. It's a not guilty verdict. Lord, we don't deserve that. We know we don't deserve that but we rejoice that it's true and we rest in the assurance that you give us through the death and resurrection of your son. Father, we're also mindful of the fact that many don't have that assurance. And Lord, that's the the burden that we want to take on ourselves from this text this morning. I pray that you would give us an awareness of the gravity of the mission that Jesus has given to his church the intense need for us to say no to what we want so that we might say yes to the mission that you've given us to fulfill. So, Father, I pray that you would kind of wake us up, that you would cause us to shake off the sleepiness and to accept and to rejoice in the fact that you've called us into partnership with this gospel message. 
Lord, this week many are going back to school, and uh, we recognize that that's a place where a lot of that mission takes place. And so we ask that you would uh, pour out your grace and your goodness in the lives of our teachers and administrators and students, especially those who know you as uh, Lord and Savior, so that they might uh, not only complete the, the things that they're there to do, learning and teaching and things like that, but also represent the Lord Jesus faithfully so that you might be glorified in our community. Father, we're uh, deeply burdened for our schools, and we ask that if there's anything that we as individuals can do, that we as a church can do to support these institutions, we ask that you'd show it to us and, and send us and equip us to do what you've called us to do. Lord, we also want to lift up the W family as they are ministering elsewhere this morning and as they wait on uh, government documents in order to go fulfill what you've called them to do. We ask that you would sustain and strengthen them and that you would pave the way so that they might fulfill their mission. And Lord, uh, we pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. What can't the Lord Jesus do? That was the spontaneous exclamation of a young captive by the name of John Merrant when he learned in the 18th century that his scheduled execution had been canceled and he would be allowed to live. Have you heard of this man, John Merrant? He was born in New York in 1755 but moved to Charleston, South Carolina as a young boy. His father died when he was young and in rebellion against his mother's desire that he grow up and learn an actual trade, he uh, apprenticed under a skilled musician, no offense to any musicians out there, and began actually to earn a living playing the fiddle and the French horn. One day, John was walking through town on his way to play music when he and a friend were distracted by a bustling crowd in a nearby meeting house. Apparently, the townsfolk had gathered to hear a preacher by the name of George Whitfield. John's friend dared him to walk. This is classic young men. He was 14 years old. His friend dared him to walk into the meeting house in the middle of the sermon and blow his horn. And John, of course, readily agreed. But God had other plans. When he entered the building and heard the preacher announce his text, the Holy Spirit convicted him so powerfully that he was not able to speak or even move for the space of half an hour. Immediately, he was born again upon the hearing of the gospel, and the change in his life became so drastic that he actually couldn't get along with the members of his own family, and he had to leave his own house. Led to wander in the South Carolina wilderness at the ripe age of 14. To make matters worse, he stumbled upon a Native American hunter who brought him back to a fortified Cherokee village where, for reasons unbeknownst to us today, he was sentenced to a slow death by burning. Weeping at the thought of this horrible fate, John immediately fell to his knees and began to pray in English and in the little bit of Cherokee that he had learned in the weeks leading up to his capture. Somehow his prayer was so moving to the Cherokee chieftain that the man pardoned him and released him to leave if he wanted. Now, if that were you or I, we would have hightailed it out of there immediately and gone back to the safety of the city or whatever village that we had come from. But Merritt, so burdened by the gospel and so intent upon 
being useful to the Lord, was convicted of the need to preach the gospel to these men, and he stayed with him with them for two years, learning their language, dressing in their clothing, working and hunting alongside them, and having a fruitful ministry that would expand over the years. Most people don't know, but John Merritt, raised as a free black man in a region where most black men are enslaved, was actually one of America's very first cross-cultural missionaries. His example of self-sacrifice is one we would do well to imitate, and many have. Uh, Think of Hudson Taylor, the uh, director of the China Inland Mission. He would follow the same pattern, immersing himself in a strange culture, wearing the the garb of the Chinese, even did his hair the way that the Chinese men uh, in his village would do their hair, in hopes that they might reach these individuals with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men like Merritt and Taylor exemplify the kind of mentality described by the Apostle Paul in this passage. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. See, the Apostle Paul wasn't just a religious hobbyist. He wasn't going through the motions of following Christ, so to speak, in order that he might enrich himself spiritually. Nor was he a teacher merely to those few individuals scattered around the Roman Empire who had decided to follow Christ. No, he had ambitions. He wanted to see as many people as possible from the Roman Empire come to Christ to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ, give their lives to him, and be born again. He, you might say, was in it to win it. He wanted to win souls. And as we'll see... This is exactly the kind of mentality that Christ expects of us today. Did you know that? He wants us to desire to win. He wants us to desire the souls of men. Today we're going to see that there are two specific requirements that enable us to fulfill the mission that God has sent us on. Let me tell you what they are, and then we'll go back and we'll explain them one by one. First of all, a winning approach to the winning of souls requires skillful contextualization. It requires skillful contextualization. And then secondly, it requires self-control. Self-control. We'll talk about what that means. Notice with me in the first place from verses 19 through 23, winning requires skillful contextualization. Winning requires skillful contextualization. Now, This word is repeated multiple times in this passage. Paul says, I want to win. I uh, became like the Jews in order to win the Jews. I became as those under the law because I wanted to win those that were under the law. I became like those who were outside the law because I wanted to win them that were outside the law. I became like the weak because I wanted to win the weak. He says, I want to win. What does that mean? Well, let me be clear. Paul isn't using that word win the way that we often use it. He's not saying he wants to make more money and succeed economically and win in that way. That's the way we often use that word. I want to win in life. That means having more money, a bigger house, a nicer car, etc. That's not what Paul means. 
nor is he saying he's in competition with anybody. He's not saying, hey, Peter and, and, and I have this competition. We want to see how many followers of Christ we can get, and uh, I'm going to beat Peter. We're in competition against each other. He's not in competition against anybody. That's not what he means either. Nor is Paul merely talking about getting people to show up in a building on a certain day of the week. It's not just about getting people into the pews and packing a pew. Now, what does he mean? The picture behind this idea of winning is actually a financial metaphor. It's winning in the sense of profiting or gaining. What he wants is to gain the souls of men. He's invested himself, he's invested his life in the preaching of the gospel, and he wants a return on that investment. And the return that he is hoping for is the winning of souls. He wants to win, and what that means is he wants as many people as possible to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, bow the knee, and believe. Another way of saying this is that he wants to save souls. That's the word he uses in verse 22. Paul's after something. He's not just going through the motions without ever thinking about the fruit of his labors. No, he's got goals. He wants to win. But here's what's wonderful about that. Think about what he wants to win them to. Paul says, what does he say in verse uh, 23? I do it all for the sake of the what? For the sake of the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Now compare that with the other religions of the world in the ancient world. Even today, most religious systems are designed to preserve and to protect what is pure from that which is impure. It's all about keeping the people on the inside isolated from the people on the outside so that they don't get contaminated with what's out there in the world. Isn't that true? And maybe you've even had that experience in your own life. This religious idea of I've got to keep myself and my family and my people protected and isolated from everything that's out there so that we might remain pure. And of course, that was true for Paul growing up. Paul was Raised as a faithful Jew in Tarsus to a strict Jewish family. He was a zealot surrounded by zealots. And what Paul would have been zealous about in his early years would have been the boundary markers between the Jews, the people who were pure, and the people who were not Jewish, the people who were out there. He grew up learning about these great heroes of the Jewish faith. Men and women who were tortured and mocked and killed as the tyrants of old tried to force them to give up their Jewish identity. And there, you can read these stories even down to this very day. Men who were forced or who the, these leaders tried to force to eat pork. Now, you can't do that if you're a good Jew, right? And so they would try to feed them. They'd say, no, I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to break God's law. Okay, well, I'm going to torture you if you don't eat this. And they would torture and kill these men. Paul grew up reading these stories about these men stayed pure. He grew up reading about a man named Phineas, the priest, who zealously killed a man and his idolatrous paramour caught in the act of immorality. He grew up reading about Nehemiah in the Old Testament, who drove away the Gentiles, even breaking up marriages, in order to keep the people of God pure. Paul grew up thinking, if you want to please God, you've got to be a good Jew. You've got to keep yourself separate from everybody else out there. You've got to be isolated. And that kind of thinking actually makes sense if you isolate the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, from the rest of the story of what God is doing in the world. The Israelites were preoccupied with staying pure. 
They didn't want to touch the Gentiles. They didn't want to go near anything that was unholy. That The children of Israel were to be separate from everybody else. They couldn't even go into business with people who weren't Jewish because of their commitments to the Sabbath and the pilgrimages to Jerusalem. It was all about keeping and preserving the people of God. But what Paul's countrymen might have downplayed is that God's holiness, and Scripture testifies to this, God's holiness is contagious. It spreads. I mean, think about Moses' experience at the burning bush. You remember he climbs up on top of the mountain and he sees this bush and it's burning but it's not consumed? Why is that? It's because of God's holiness present in the bush. And, and, and when he comes near to the bush and he hears the voice of God, God tells him, take off your shoes because the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. The holiness of God has sort of spread out into the bush and then even into the ground on which Moses was standing. Years later, he would be back on top of Mount Sinai, and he would fellowship with God on top of Mount Sinai. And what happened to Moses' face? The the Bible tells us Moses was impacted by the holiness of God. And when he came back down the mountain, his face shone because he had been in the presence of God. And all of that culminates with the coming of a person named Jesus of Nazareth. Because when Jesus comes into the world, he doesn't act like the other Jewish people uh, around. An unclean person comes up to Jesus, someone who has leprosy, ceremonially unclean, someone who has a hemorrhage of blood, ceremonially unclean. And when they touch Jesus, they don't make Jesus unclean like you would expect. Jesus' virtue goes out of him and actually cleanses that person. And so it's that kind of reversal that movement of, hey, I'm, I'm not going to try to just preserve the, the pure anymore. I'm going to actually go out and spread the message of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that serves as sort of the driving impulse behind Paul's mentality. That dynamic changed everything in Paul's life. He was so zealous for his ancestral traditions, he was trying to stamp out what what he saw as impurity, these Christians who hated the law of Moses, and then he personally met Jesus, and and it changed everything. It changed the way he interacted with the people of the world. It changed him from preserving purity to preaching a message of victory and salvation in Jesus Christ. So let me tell you what that means today. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. We're glad you're here, because here's why. Our desire is to win you. That's our goal. I just want to be honest. That's our mission. That's what we want to do. We want to try to plead with you to bow the knee to Jesus and believe in him alone. So let me just tell you something. There is a God who is far greater than any other being in in the whole universe. I mean, perfectly wise, knows everything, never had to learn anything because he already knows it. In fact, everything that exists from the platform on which I'm standing to the rest of this building to the animals and the birds flying around outside to you yourself was made by this God. And everything that exists is made for his glory. And he made you, listen to this, he made you in his image. Even though I don't know you that well, some of you I don't know at all, I can tell you that you were made in the image of God. That means you're like him in so many different ways. But the Bible tells us, and you know this is true, we don't live out what God has 
desire for us in, in life. I mean, he's told us what he expects from us. He wants us to love him. He wants us to obey his commands, but we don't do that. We want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing, and so we rebel. We push back against the commands of God, and the Bible tells us that from, from the, the top of our head down to the bottom of our toes, we are sick with something called sin. We've rebelled against the Lord Jesus Christ. We've rebelled against the commandments of God. We lie. We steal. We want our own glory, and instead of accepting Christ. We want our own glory. And, and it would be right, it would be good for God to just say, you know what? I made you for a purpose. You're not fulfilling that purpose. I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth and start over. That would be his right to do, but he doesn't do that. See, because of his goodness and his kindness and his mercy and his love, because he wanted to display his glory in the grace of forgiving sinners, he's patient with us. And he's been patient with you this morning. And if, if you're sitting here and you're listening to the sound of my voice, you are a recipient of the mercy of God. If you are breathing air this morning, you are a recipient of the mercies and the kindness of God. And he offers us that kindness, and he goes even further than that. He actually sent his own son into the world. His own son, Jesus of Nazareth, fully God fully deserving of the glories of thousands of angels. He laid all of that aside, and he was born into a poor family. He had nothing. He had nowhere to lay his head, even at the, the peak of his ministry, nowhere to live. And he lived the life that we were called to live. He perfectly obeyed the law of God, and he died the death that we deserve to die. And then God, to prove and show that the job was done and that the work was finished, he raised him from the dead, and he is alive today. And so what that means is he calls out to you, he calls out to me, and he commands us to repent. That is to turn from my way, to stop going my way, and to say, I've been wrong. I've been a sinner. And I deserve to die, but I believe that Jesus died and rose again for me. And the Bible tells us that if, if that's true of you, that if you are willing to admit that you are a sinner, and if you are willing to call out to Jesus Christ and ask him to save you, then the Bible says you can be justified. That means that the verdict on your life will be not guilty, accepted into the family of God forever. Forgiven forever, and in Christ you can be saved from the clutches of evil and the condemnation of the law, and you can be free from sin. And there is no condition. It's a free gift. I hope you believe that today. So, like, stop fighting and running and hiding and pulling back from the convicting work of God's Spirit. Is it possible today that God brought you here, that God brought you into contact with somebody who loves God and, and knows the Bible so that you might believe today that he's been pursuing you? Why would you wait? Swallow your pride and say, yes, I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus today. See, that's our desire. We want to win. We want to win you. Paul's aim was to win. He was in it to win it. But in order to win, he recognized that he needed to engage in skillful contextualization. You say, Jake, I've been waiting for you to explain what in the world does that mean. And I know that's one of those uh, pretentious-sounding words, and I apologize for that. If you can think of a better one, I will listen to you. Uh, but I couldn't think of a better word. What is contextualization? What does that mean? Here's what it means. 
It simply means bringing the message of the gospel of Jesus into a new ministry situation without bringing all the unnecessary baggage from an old ministry situation. It means taking the message of the gospel and bringing it into a situation without changing uh, things unnecessarily. You don't have to be uh, culturally like me in order to believe and follow Jesus. I don't. I want to contextualize. I don't want to say, well, in order to follow Jesus, you've got to be like Jake Grogan. No, that's not true. I don't want to bring unnecessary baggage into my preaching of the gospel. I want to contextualize. I want to bring that into a new situation without the unnecessary baggage of the old situation. So let's look at some of the examples that Paul gives. He says to, to the Jews, uh, I became as a Jew. You, you don't have to stop being Jewish in order to follow Jesus Christ. And so when I was ministering among the Jews, I I acted the way that the Jewish people do. I didn't do things that offended them unnecessarily because I was there to win them. So Paul doesn't flaunt the way that he's no longer beholden to Jewish culture when he's ministering to the Jews. He he doesn't do stuff that detracts from the message of the gospel. Uh, The same thing uh, with those who are outside the law, that is Gentiles, uh, people who don't belong to the old covenant people of God. Paul... uh, when he would minister to people who didn't grow up in a Jewish home, he didn't make a big deal of the fact that he had grown up in a Jewish home. He didn't want to distract from the message of the gospel. So he contextualized. He lived with them. He acted like them, even though there were probably times when it sort of grossed him out because they were eating food he didn't like. Uh, He lived with them, and he became like them, not in the sense of breaking God's law, but in the sense of just adopting their culture. And then he mentions this other category. Uh, he says, I became like the weak. Now think about this. From chapter 1 all the way to this point, this word weak keeps coming up. Who are the weak? Uh, most commentators nowadays speculate that the weak that Paul talks about are individuals who they just don't have the opportunities of, of wealthy people in the ancient world. They had uh, limitations having to do with their socioeconomic position. These were slaves, poor folk. People couldn't just do whatever they wanted. Uh, if they wanted to meet together for church on a Sunday, they would have had to, uh, they couldn't just do that whenever. They would have to ask permission from their master or something like that. These are the weak. And Paul says, when I wanted to minister to the weak, I became like the weak. I could have accepted money. I could have taken my place among the professional speakers and orators of the day. I could have hobnobbed with the patrons and the rich people. But no, here's what I did when I came to Corinth. I lived with the artisans. I became a tent maker because I wanted to reach those people who were in a position that, uh, of, of weakness in the world. Uh, I wanted to win them. By the way, did you catch the example that uh, Jeff read about earlier in the service? where Paul contextualized, where he didn't assert his rights in order to win the people to whom he was ministering. Paul was a Roman citizen. He could have asserted his rights and said, you can't beat me, I'm a Roman citizen. But he didn't do that. He subjected his body to beating. And what happened was the Philippian jailer ended up coming to Christ as a result of the fact that he said no to his own rights and yes to ministry. And that takes skill to do. That skillful contextualization, it takes wisdom. You have to pay attention to do that well. Uh, New Testament scholar and missionary to the Middle East, a man by the name of Kenneth Bailey, who went to heaven just recently, 
uh, shares a personal example in his own commentary on 1 Corinthians. He says, uh, I've been living in the Middle East for 40 plus years, and I dress like the people I'm ministering to. I speak multiple dialects of Arabic, and I, I, I lecture, I teach in Arabic. I know the language, I know the people, I eat the food that they eat. But I would never stand up in the middle of preaching and say, we Arabs. Why? Because they know I'm a Westerner. They know I'm not, a, 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 I'm not an Arab. And so he says there's limits. I've got to recognize that it takes skill in order to take the gospel message and apply it to a new situation. It requires skillful contextualization. And this is sort of like what Paul's saying. He's saying, I become like someone outside the law, but that doesn't mean I'm outside the law. That doesn't mean I don't follow the law of Christ. I don't compromise the message. I don't compromise the morals of Scripture. I, I simply take my own rights and my preferences, and I say those are not as important to me as the souls of the people in front of me, the souls of the people that I'm ministering to. And he skillfully contextualizes in order that he might remove all offenses except the offense of the cross. You say, so Jake, well, what does that look like for us today? I mean, here we are in Texas, and, you know, we already pretty much do everything correctly here, so uh, I don't, wouldn't want to compromise any of that. No, I'm just joking. Uh, what does that look for, like for us today? I, I think there are at least two entailments uh, for, for us today. One of the main takeaways for me is that when we as a church send workers across cultures, we need to give them the space and the time to learn the language and integrate into the culture of the people to whom they've been sent. I don't know that we appreciate how much time and energy and effort that takes. So when the W's move to South Asia, I don't know if you know this, it's going to take a very, very long time for them to learn the language. It's going to take a long time for them to really understand the culture. Why is that? It, because it's one thing to be able to speak enough of the language to order food at a restaurant or buy food at the grocery store, but it's another thing altogether to have a conversation in a second language about worldview, about heart matters about things that are important on the soul level. And the W's are going to need to talk not only about Jesus, they're going to have to talk about the idols and the sins and the particular worldview issues of the people in which they are ministering. And that takes skill. That takes time to learn. Do we as a church value that? Do we appreciate that? It's grueling and it's difficult and they need their church family to support them and cheer them on in that multi-year process instead of looking at our watch and saying, well, is there a church yet? You know, what, what's wrong? It's been six months. No, they're going to need time and, and they need our support through that. Missionary Matt Rhodes in his recent book, No Shortcut to Success, shares the kind of thing that can happen when Missionaries don't understand the culture in which they're serving. Uh, he gives numerous examples, but one that he shared, uh, he talks about uh, American churches who were supporting a local evangelist in a context in Africa where they really didn't understand the culture in which they were providing that support. They were supporting this particular evangelist. They thought they were only sending him a few bucks every month. But what they didn't realize was that they had made him one of the wealthiest people in the entire region. And their support of him 
had kind of been published abroad. And this man, unbeknownst to them, happened to have a reputation for stealing and dishonesty. So instead of communicating the goodness and the purity and the wonder of the gospel, what they were actually doing was communicating to the culture, followers of Jesus are dishonest and steal from other people. You see, it's very important, and all I'm saying is that we need to remember that the investment our missionaries are making in the toilsome work of contextualization is a worthwhile work. Do not despise it. Appreciate it and encourage it. Another entailment from this passage is uh, we need to be able to give up our preferences for the sake of the mission. Have you ever come to understand that? We need to be able to give up our preferences for the sake of the mission. I'm not saying we need to compromise our convictions for the sake of the mission. I'm not saying we need to put ourselves in a spiritually dangerous position for the sake of the mission. Uh, Paul doesn't say you need to go up in the club to share the gospel. Uh, He doesn't say that you need to become a secret agent evangelist in a gang in order to, to win those to Christ. No, in the larger context, where's the emphasis in this passage? Think about the sermons, the chapters that we've studied in the weeks leading up to this one. Where's the emphasis? The emphasis is on giving up those things that I prefer, giving up even those things that I feel like I have a right to expect in order that the gospel might go out free of charge. Martin Luther used to say, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none, A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. And that's what we're talking about here. Paul says, I'm, excuse me, I'm free from everybody. I'm completely free. I don't care what you think. I don't care about your opinions of me. I'm free. But then he goes on to say, I've made myself a servant of all so that I might win all the more. And that's what we're talking about here. Are we willing to lay aside our rights because we want to win souls. I'm afraid that in the average local church in the United States of America, uh, our priorities end up being something other than the fulfillment of the mission and the desire to win souls. Have you noticed that to be the case? We end up having different priorities. We think about getting involved at church and it ends up being a question of, what do I most enjoy? What, What helps me feel better about myself? How do I feel the most useful instead of saying, what can I do that will advance the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ? We want to appease people we think give the most money. That's not what we're here to do. We want to stroke somebody's ego. That's not why God left us on this earth. We want to pad our ministry resume, but that's not the goal. None of those things matter. And I hope you make friends here. I hope you feel valued here. I hope you learn things here. I hope you enjoy your time here at Indian Creek Baptist Church. But the whole reason why we're here is because Christ has left us here to represent him in the world so that we might bear fruit, so that we might win souls. Are we in it to win it, or are we here because we get something out of it personally? If there's anything we're doing that unnecessarily distracts, that gets in the way of the clear communication of the gospel, let's just get rid of it. It's not about my comforts. I I can be comfortable in heaven. But there are thousands out there without hope and without God, and they're sprinting toward the gates of hell. And, And if we have to do something that stretches us a little bit personally 
in order to win the lost, then who do we think we are standing in the way of what God's mission is for his church? Now, I can list all sorts of caveats and qualifications. Well, we don't want to compromise in this way. We don't want to compromise in that way. And I'm right there with you on that. But at the end of the day, am I willing to take my preferences and my rights and put them over here to the side and say, those aren't important to me because I'm after something. I want to win. If we're going to win, it's going to take skillful contextualization. It's going to take us saying uh, saying about our rights, they're not important to me. Uh, Secondly, if we want to win, it's going to take skillful contextualization and secondly, self-control. Self-control. Look at verse 24. Paul says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. A few years ago, uh, there was a lot of talk about the greatest NFL player of all time, the quarterback, Tom Brady. As he reached an age where many of his peers were retiring, Brady seemed to be settling in. He was in his prime. He was doing his best work, extending his career long past the point where others would have retired. And At one point, people began to ask him, how are you doing this? How are you sustaining this level of success for so long? And I think he said something like, if you want to beat me, you'd better be willing to give up everything, because I have. See, the fact is, almost all professional athletes, almost all successful athletes, at one level or another, beyond their exceptional genetics, beyond the world-class training, they have learned to go far beyond what most of us think is realistic in terms of personal discipline and in terms of being willing to say no to their body's desires. Their diet is fine-tuned. Their schedule is fine-tuned. They push themselves to lift more, run more, take more punishment than most of us think is humanly possible. And why do they do that? To obtain a perishable prize. I mean, sure, they might get more than a trophy. They might get a little bit extra money or fame, but that's not going to last. And, and Paul's saying, uh, this, is what Christian, this is the mentality that Christians need to have. This is the mentality that we need to have. In Paul's day, the city of Corinth was famous for the biannual Isthmian Games, a sort of precursor to the modern-day Olympics. And uh, a commentator by the name of Jerome Murphy O'Connor speculates that Paul must have gone to the games in A.D. 49 or 51 when he was ministering there in the city, uh, selling tents, perhaps, to some of the athletes or the spectators who had visited for those games. They're a big part of Corinthian culture. And so all the members of this little church would have known about these victory crowns. You know what they would do? An athlete works so hard, he disciplines himself, he says no to all of his desires, he goes on a diet, you know, he, he hustles and he trains, and if he wins, if he's one of the few who actually wins a race or a fight, he gets a little crown, and you know what that crown is made of? It's made of pine, le- pine needles or celery. It's true. Celery. I cannot imagine... Uh, <laughs> 
pouring my whole life into an athletic pursuit and running a marathon or something, winning the race, and then you get to the platform and they give you a little crown made of celery. That would be disgusting. But that's what they would do. And here's, here's what Paul's saying. He's not telling the Corinthians only one of you is going to get the prize. He's just saying, he's making a comparison. He's saying if you're an athlete, you are going to go after that prize. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got to recognize that the prize you are going after is far more valuable than anything any athlete goes after. He's saying if it's true that for athletes, without discipline, you know already you are going to lose. You already know that. And even the most disciplined out of all of them do it for a crown that's going to wither and rot. Then how much more worthwhile is it for us to say no to the desires of the flesh, no to our rights, and yes to the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of winning something that is going to last forever? It is worth it for us to do this. You want to know what our problem is in the church today as individual Christians today? Maybe we're just too comfortable. That we've decided that conveniences are necessities. Now, I'm not talking about resting in Christ. I'm talking about, you know, we feel like, if the, it, I'll, I'll give you an example. You know this is true. If the air conditioner broke today, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> I don't know if I would be here. I've We've decided conveniences are necessities. We've placed our commitment to Christ on the margins of our life. By the way, I've heard, uh, I've visited folks in the nursing home who came to Indian Creek back long, long, long ago. And they said, we met under a, a brush arbor made of cedar branches. You know how much sneezing and coughing w- would be going on if that were the case? We've come a long way. And thank God for this building, okay? I'm not knocking it. <laughs> But we expect following Christ to be convenient. And and, and folks, that convenience is the thing that is killing the mission. You cannot be a soldier of Jesus Christ and have everything be convenient. Just like you cannot win a marathon if you never get out there and push yourself to run a little more. You've got to do it. Just like a nightly ice cream habit and a snooze button will shut you down physically. And I know that from experience. A lack of self-control in the spiritual realm will make it really hard for you to win the souls of men. And you're going to be beating the air. You're going to be shadow boxing. And this, friends, this is where you need, to, you need to decide between you and the Lord what it looks like to follow Jesus in this way. I grew up in a context where uh, this was sort of shoved down our throat in a sense. We were uh, we had leaders who told us, you know, when to show up and what to wear, what kind of job you're supposed to have, how much money you're supposed to give, that sort of thing. I don't think Jesus intends for that to happen. I think he wants you to decide. I think he wants you to have communion with him and, and, and make those decisions out of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ yourself. But in many cases, because of that background, I've noticed that what we tend to do is throw off all restraint altogether, even self-restraint. We say, you know what, I, was, I grew up, people were telling me I couldn't drink alcohol. I'm allowed to drink alcohol, and so we just go for it, right? Nobody can stop me from dating this type of person, or I have Christian liberty to do this, and so we don't have any self-control at all. And what that 
thing is that we're free to do actually ends up enslaving us. Friends, listen, don't make any mistake. The Christian life is a strenuous life. It is a life of self-denial, just like the life of an athlete. It's a life of discipline. And the truth of the matter is that in evangelical culture in America today, we have almost convinced ourselves that the opposite is the case. That if you, the, the, the minute you say, I've got to have personal discipline, I've got to have some self-control, someone, in, someone comes in and says, you're being legalistic. No. It's a life of self-control. You say, Jake, I don't want to come to church and be miserable. That's not why I'm here. And I don't either. I get what you're saying. In fact, I would argue that saying no to yourself is going to bring you greater joy. I mean, think about it. Nobody likes to uh, run that extra mile or do that extra set. It doesn't feel good in the moment, but it sure does feel good when you can tie your shoes without having to catch your breath. There is a deeper joy in self-sacrifice than there is in self-indulgence. So, Listen, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. You're always welcome at Indian Creek Baptist Church. Some of you have been coming for a long time. Some of you are here for the first time today. Everyone is welcome. And I hope that you find that you can rest when you're here, that you can rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you can just sit back and enjoy the fact that Jesus did all the work, that you don't have to earn God's favor, that you don't have to earn his love. But what I'm saying is this. God has saved us. Christ has given his life for us, not just so that we would sit back and spectate. He wants us to get off the bench, and he wants us to get in the game. He wants us to do something to pursue the souls of men. He wants us to have a winning mentality. He wants us to desire to win souls. And I'm here to tell you, this church... God has put us in a place where if we decide we're going to do that, there's no telling what God could do. There's no telling what God could do through Indian Creek Baptist Church, through any local church, as we all get on board with that mission. So listen, are you willing today to skillfully contextualize the message of the gospel? That is to say, I, I don't care about my rights. I don't care about my preferences. I just want to serve the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you willing to have self-control today? To say no to the desires of the flesh. To say no to the things you want to do. To say no to the pool of the world because you recognize that this mission is critically important. That souls hang in the balance. And my life, my life, God has given it to me so that I might pursue the mission that God's given to his church. I am a part of what God is doing through the gospel. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that God has put you on this earth for a reason? Then let's say no to the desires of the flesh. Let's say no to our rights and yes to winning souls. Would you pray with me now? Father, thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. And there are so many instances in which he could have asserted himself and he decided not to do that. Thank you for the example and the empowerment of the Lord Jesus who I, he could have destroyed the entire earth and started over. He would have been well within his rights. But because of his love and his mercy and his grace, came into the world and took on flesh and struggled with all the weaknesses and all the difficulties that we ourselves face. 
was tempted in all the ways that we ourselves are tempted, and yet he never bent and he never broke. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit who convicts us of our need to have that winning mentality, to desire the souls of men, to desire to partner with the gospel. That's what we want to be, Father. And I I just pray that you would forgive, that you would cleanse away the ways in which we have allowed the pool of the world to take over our affections. You would forgive us for the ways in which we've decided my comfort's actually more important than souls. That you'd forgive us for setting up priorities that militate against the priority of the mission that you've given to your church. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you make it clear today to each individual here what it is that you're calling us to do, to lay aside our rights, say no to the flesh, and to have that winning mentality. Lord, help us to be in it, to win it. Help us to have a desire to see souls saved. And then, Father, I pray that you would bring the harvest. Father, we love you, and we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.